0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today is episode 315 for March 13th, 2023. We've got a news show for you today. Lots of stories to cover. Uh, We'll start off with a story about how the police have raided the homes of some suspected ransomware gangs. Then there's a security flaw in the TPM 2.0 spec, the trusted platform module. It may or may not be as bad as it sounds. The Biden administration, the White House here in the United States has released a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy that looks very interesting. Lastpass has finally published a lot more details about what happened in their in their breach and uh it's really actually very interesting and uh doesn't forgive some of the things they've done but I think I think you'll see that it was a pretty sophisticated attack. I ran across a very interesting article from Kaspersky about How people's browser sync features has become a security issue with people working from home. A Catholic group has spent millions of dollars buying app data that they have been using to track gay priests. I've got another story about how the police are basically using a loophole in evidence-gathering law to use private home video as evidence. A couple stories about how telehealth startups have been leaking data, very personal, very sensitive data, including from some members of the U.S. Congress. Finally, a story confirming uh, that Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and the Secret Service have been conducting what appears to be illegal surveillance of U.S. citizens. Then we've got the deer carry Question of the Week and the Tip of the Week, where I'll be giving you a, a nice long checklist of Tips for securing your home network and your smart devices, courtesy of the National Security Agency. So, plenty to talk about, let's get to it. All right, First up, a short article from The Verge, some good news in the war against ransomware gangs. And it goes like this. German and Ukrainian police raided the homes of individuals leaked to a prominent cybercrime group that stole millions from large companies and organizations over the course of several years. The authorities worked with Europol and the FBI last month to investigate the residences of members of the hacking group, which often goes by the names Endrick Spider, Double Spider, and Grief. The group notably waged a ransomware attack on Dusseldorf University Hospital in 2020 using its Doppelpamer ransomware. At the time, German police blamed the attack for the death of a patient who had to be transferred to another hospital due to system-wide corruption. It also carried out an attack on the UK's National Health Service in 2017 and took responsibility for a 2021 ransomware attack on the National Rifle Association. The cybercriminal group distributes ransomware through emails containing documents with malicious code, granting them access to a target's systems once downloaded. It then threatens to leak sensitive company data unless it receives payment. Europol estimates that victims of the cybercrime group's attacks in the U.S. paid at least 40 million euros, or about 42 million U.S. dollars, between May of 2019 and March of 2021, while German authorities counted 601 victims in total. On February 28th, German and Ukrainian police conducted simultaneous raids on the homes of belonging to two suspected members. However, a spokesman for the Germany's North rhine westphalia uh, uh, State Police Force tells The Verge that authorities haven't made any arrests yet and the suspects were released after questioning. Meanwhile, three Russian individuals with ties to the group are still wanted by international authorities. Both Germany and Ukraine are currently analyzing the seized evidence to locate other group members and determine their roles. So anyway, just a good shout out, uh, some some good work being done, and it seems like we're really finally starting to make progress against some of these ransomware gangs. So good news, hopefully this will lead to some arrests and less bad guys out there creating ransomware and causing havoc, in this case, death. All right, next up, this is from TechSpot, and it's about the TPM spec, the Trusted Platform Module spec, and some security flaws found therein. Security researchers recently discovered a couple of flaws in the trusted platform module 2.0 reference library specification, two dangerous buffer overflow vulnerabilities that could potentially impact billions of devices. Exploiting the flaws is only possible from an authenticated local account, but a piece of malware running on an affected device could do exactly that. The two vulnerabilities are tracked as CVE-2023-1017 and CVE-2023-1018, or as out-of-bounds right and out-of-bounds read flaws. The issue was discovered within the TPM 2.0's module library, which allows writing or reading two extra bytes past the end of a TPM 2.0 command in the crypt parameter description routine. I know, that's gobbledygook. Don't worry too much about it. By reading specifically crafted malicious commands, an attacker could exploit the vulnerabilities to crash the TPM chip, making it unusable, execute arbitrary code within the TPM's protected memory, or read or access sensitive data stored in the theoretically isolated crypto processor. In other words, successful exploitation of these two bugs could compromise cryptographic keys, passwords, and other critical data, making security features of the modern TPM-based operating systems like Windows 11 essentially useless or broken. TPM provides a hardware number generator, secure generation and storage of cryptographic keys, remote attestation with a nearly unforgeable hash key summary of the hardware and system configuration and other trusted computing functions. On Windows 11, the TPM can also be used for DRM technology, or digital rights management, Windows Defender, BitLocker full disk encryption, and more. According to the CERT Coordination Center at Carnegie Mellon University, a successful payload exploiting the vulnerabilities could run within the TPM and be essentially undetectable by security software or devices. The issue is resolved by installing the most recent firmware updates available for the user's device, but the process is easier said than done. While the flaws could theoretically impact billions of motherboards and software products, just a few companies have confirmed that they have indeed been affected by the issue thus far. Chinese company Lenovo, the world's largest PC manufacturer, acknowledged the issue in its Note Nuvoton. N-U-V-O-T-O-N, I'm not familiar with that, Nuvoton line of TPM chips. All right, so Trusted Platform Module. This is a special security chip that has been in the market for quite a while. Uh, Apple has something similar called a Secure Enclave. It's basically a dedicated processor and storage, basically a mini computer, a computer within a computer, dedicated to security things. And this is where things like, you know, your fingerprint and face ID and private keys and other things like that are stored in such a way that they can't be coaxed out by malicious software, except in in this case, there is a bug that apparently allows that to happen. Now, you know, this would have to be, as it said in the article, running as a local authenticated user. So. You know, you'd think, well, that would require access to the device, but not really, because because whatever you can do, malware can do as well, which is why you want to limit your own personal permissions on your devices whenever possible. You should not be running your daily account on an on administrator-level privileges. You should only have standard privileges. One of the things I recommend that everybody do on your computer is make sure you have at least two accounts, an, auth, an admin account and a non-admin account, and your daily, everyday use account should be your non-admin account. So I'm not sure. And this article didn't say whether uh, a non-administrative user could have exploited this, uh, these vulnerabilities or not. So I'm not sure if that would have helped in this particular case, but it's generally a very good practice to limit access. You know, it's a need-to-know basis kind of a thing. It's the principle of least privilege in cybersecurity. Don't give yourself uh, or anyone any more privilege or access to things than they absolutely need, and only give it to them for the time of, for the time period in which they need it. So anyway, the, the, the worry here is that if you were somehow infected with malware, or I guess perhaps if somebody had access to your to your computer and they were able to log in, that they would then be able to in, uh, implement one of these attacks and perhaps get at or erase some of the security data. So if you have a Windows machine, just be on the lookout for any updates from your device manufacturer or from Microsoft. And in the meantime, uh, try try not to be infected with malware. All right. Next up, there's a couple uh, articles here from The Washington Post. I'm just going to read part of one of them, Uh, but they're about a a new cybersecurity strategy released by the White House. Uh, which is really promising. Actually, it, it's good to see that we're, you know, we're taking this seriously. And uh, they've, the White House here in the US has been releasing some other things over the course of the last uh, year or so. We talked to Josh Corman about some of these things. Actually, I'd love to get Josh back to talk about some of the specifics of of, of this new plan. But uh, anyway, this article talks about some of those things. And uh, then I'll give you my take here at the end. The Biden administration on Thursday, and I believe this was last Thursday, unveiled a national cyber strategy that calls for imposing federally mandated security rules on critical infrastructure, holding software manufacturers accountable for insecure products, and pressing the government's fight against malicious hackers. The plan's focus on putting in place new regulations in some areas is likely to draw opposition from congressional Republicans and pushback from different industries. But administration officials said the approach is warranted while emphasizing that it is still seeking to foster a cooperative relationship relationship between federal agencies and the private sector to protect key parts of the economy and national security infrastructure from cyber attacks. In many ways, the strategy reflects work already underway in the Biden administration that came in response to cyber attacks, beginning with a sprawling alleged Russian cyber espionage campaign that President Biden inherited in the early days of his tenure and continuing into the attack on the colonial pipeline in mid-2021 that sparked a gasoline panic. But it also includes new initiatives and goals that could take a decade or more for the United States to complete, said senior administration officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to brief reporters in advance of the strategy's release. Some of the goals depend on congressional action, which could be challenging for a Democratic president standing opposite a Republican-controlled House. That includes the embrace of new regulations that stands in stark contrast to the past government approach of focusing on voluntary measures and collaboration between the federal agencies and industry. Several agencies have already begun imposing mandatory security rules, the first of of which were for pipelines after the Colonial Pipeline attack. Those rules, for instance, required the most critical pipeline operators to notify the Transportation Security Administration within 24 hours of a major hack and produce plans for responding to incidents when they happen. Other plans for regulations, though, such as cybersecurity rules for the communications sector, will require Congress to give new powers to the executive branch. In one indicator of potential clashes ahead, new Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee, whose committee would play a role in approving or denying some of the strategy's legislative goals, had already voiced skepticism last month about the strategy's expected focus on regulation that he feared might quote-unquote strangle industry. The administration contends that the lack of mandatory requirements has penalized critical infrastructure owners who prioritize cybersecurity. And this is a quote from uh, the strategy statement. It says, quote, Today's marketplace insufficiently rewards and often disadvantages the owners and operators of critical infrastructure who invest in proactive measures to prevent or mitigate the effects of cyber incidents. Regulations can level the playing field, enabling healthy competition without sacrificing cybersecurity or operational resilience, unquote. Furthermore it asserts lackluster cybersecurity hurts smaller businesses more than large corporations another quote from the uh, from the document quote In too many cases, organizations that choose not to invest in cybersecurity negatively and unfairly impact those that do, often disproportionately impacting small businesses and our most vulnerable communities. While market forces remain the first best route to agile and effective innovation, they have not adequately mobilized industry to prioritize our core economic and national security interests, Another way in which the strategy seeks to shift cyber responsibility, is in its call for legislation that would establish liability for software makers. That's an idea that has been around for decades, but that has seen almost no action. Administration officials argue that software manufacturers are financially incentivized to prioritize speeding their products to market and giving short shrift to security along the way. That, in turn, puts the onus on consumers to continually apply patches, effectively effectively making them, rather than major technology companies, responsible for security. The idea hasn't gotten very far for many reasons, among them because it's difficult to determine where to assign legal liability for failed security and how long a company should be liable for a product's security, as well as concerns in industry about how secure a product must be to avoid facing legal fallout. The strategy calls for increasing the volume and speed of disruption campaigns, enhanced collaboration with the private sector to disrupt botnets that take over victim computers to launch malware, and countering ransomware gangs with law enforcement investigations and preventions of the abuse of cryptocurrency. So this was actually a much, much longer article, and there's a related article that you might want to read as well. All of that's in the show notes. Uh, I think this is great. I really like seeing this sort of... Progress being made. I like seeing these sorts of statements, these sorts of policy things coming out. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to do. This is really just a statement of what they want to do. There's only so much that, you know, in a government like the United States with three co-equal branches, uh, there's only so much that any one branch can do on its own. That's by design. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's a good first step. It's a great place to start some conversations. I think I agree with everything, at least that I've read in here so far. On the whole, I think these are these are good ideas and I really hope that, you know, we can find some bipartisan support. Really, this is, these should be nonpartisan issues. And hopefully we can fight back some of the resistance from the tech companies because we, we've we really got to step up our game here. All right, next up. We finally heard some more from LastPass about what really happened with their, their breaches. Actually, the two breaches, there was the initial breach in August, uh, which led to another breach later in the fall. And while this really doesn't exonerate LastPass, there's still a a lot of things I had problems with in terms of their response to this and also in terms of not keeping their clients up to date with the most current security standards in terms of, you know, PPKFDF2 iterations and and such. Uh, Nevertheless, I I think (laughs) uh, this will give you a little better idea of of how targeted and how highly sophisticated this attack was. So l- let me read a little bit from this article and then I'll, I'll circle back and talk a little bit more. Again, this is from Ars Technica already smarting from a breach that put partially encrypted login data into a threat actor's hands. Last pass on Monday said that the same attacker hacked an employee's home computer and obtained a decrypted vault available to only a handful of company developers. Although an initial intrusion into LastPass ended on August 12th, this was last year, officials with the leading password manager said that the threat actor was, quote, actively engaged in a new series of reconnaissance, enumeration, and exfiltration activity, unquote, from August 12th to August 26th. In the process, the unknown threat actor was able to steal valid credentials from a senior DevOps engineer and access the contents of a LastPass data vault. Among other things, the vault gave access to a shared cloud storage environment that contained the encryption keys for customer vault backups stored in Amazon S3 buckets. And S3 buckets are just proprietary marketing name for cloud storage. And here's a quote from LastPass. Quote, This was accomplished by targeting the DevOps engineer's home computer and exploiting a vulnerable third-party media software package which enabled remote code execution capability and allowed the threat actor to implant keylogger malware. The threat actor was able to capture the employee's master password as it was entered after the employee authenticated with MFA and gain access to the DevOps engineer's LastPass corporate vault, unquote. The hacked DevOps engineer was one of only four LastPass employees with access to the corporate vault. Once in possession of the decrypted vault, the threat actor exported the entries, including the, quote, decryption keys needed to access the AWS S3 LastPass production backups, other cloud-based storage resources, and some related critical database backups, unquote. Monday's update comes two months after LastPass issued a previous bombshell update that for the first time said that, contrary to previous assertions, the attackers had obtained customer vault data containing both encrypted and plain text data. LastPass said then that the threat actor had also obtained a cloud storage access key and dual storage container decryption keys, allowing for the copying of customer vault backup data from the encrypted storage container. The backup data contained both unencrypted data, such as website URLs, as well as website usernames and passwords, secure notes, and form filled data, which had an additional layer of encryption using 256 bit AES and that's advanced encryption standard. The new details explain how the threat actor obtained the S3 encryption keys. Monday's update said that the tactics, techniques, and procedures used in the first incident were different from those in the second one, and that, as a result, it wasn't initially clear to investigators that the two were directly related. During the second incident, the threat actor used information obtained from the first one to enumerate and exfiltrate the data stored in the S3 buckets. According to a person briefed on a private report from LastPass who spoke on the condition of anonymity, the media software package that was exploited on the employee's home computer was Plex. Interestingly, Plex reported its own network intrusion on August 24th, just 12 days after the second incident commenced. The breach allowed the threat actor to access a proprietary database and make off with a password data, usernames, and emails belonging to some of its 30 million customers. Plex is a major provider of media streaming services that allows users to stream movies and audio, play games, and access their own content hosted on home or other on-premise media servers. It's not clear if the Plex breach has any connection to the LastPass intrusions. Representatives of LastPass and Plex didn't respond to emails seeking comment on this story. The threat actor behind the LastPass breach has proven especially resourceful, and the revelation that it successfully exploited a software vulnerability on the home computer of an employee further reinforces that view. As Ars advised in December, all LastPass users should change their master passwords and all passwords stored in their vaults. While it's not clear whether the threat actor has access to either, the precautions are warranted. All right, so a lot of things to pick apart there. First of all, DevOps, uh, that is a industry term for development and operations. And so a, dev- a DevOps engineer is kind of combining those two roles in one. Actually, my last days at Cisco, I was working as a DevOps engineer. So I understand completely what this, what this is about. So DevOps engineering, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to summarize, but, but you're an engineer that is actually specifically focused really on deployment of software to the customer in a lot of cases. Uh, it's about site reliability and things like that so it would make sense that these would be the engineers that would you know some someone in this position would be one of the few people at the company that might have access to some of this backup data but the really interesting thing about this to me is that this really appears to be highly targeted in fact it almost appears like it might have been two separate actors working together and this happens a lot of times that, that you know hacking has become a real industry and there are a lot of groups whose primary thing is just gaining access like that is all they do like they hack around a bunch of different companies and all the, all they do is they they figure out if they can get into somebody's network and then once they do they gather up some data and then they sell that access off to somebody else that that may have happened here maybe that's why the tactics techniques and procedures uh, in the industry lingo that's TTP Maybe that's why the TTP looked different uh, for the second set of attacks. You know, maybe they sold it to someone else and somebody else came in uh, to exploit that information. But then they figured out somehow that only a certain number of people in the company had access to the the, the main family jewels kind of thing. They they had access to these vault backups. And apparently there's only four people in the whole LastPass company that could have done this. They found one of them, figured out this person was working from home, then found a way to attack that person's home network by by compromising their Plex media server, and then from there using that as a foothold or a beachhead inside that DevOps engineer's home network to compromise their work computer. Install key logging software, then with the key logging software, catch this person's password entry for this company system, and then use that while intercepting the multi-factor authentication to log into this very special, very highly guarded server that contained all these backups, and then exfiltrate that data. Honestly, (laughs) this sort of a focused attack actually in my book this is almost like dragon level attack this is the kind of thing that's almost impossible to prevent if if you've got somebody with deep enough pockets enough resources and patience to do this level of targeted attack it's very hard to resist so again i i personally think that this this sort of this level of attack could happen to any corporation and a lot of other companies have been hacked this way sony was attacked this way by north korea it, this is this is tough so i i honestly you know, without more details, it's hard to say. But from what I can see, it's it's hard to really put a lot of blame on LastPass for being attacked in this way. Now, again, they've done there was a lot of the things they did wrong, and I, I still think there there's plenty of reason to be upset with LastPass as a company uh, and and their product as a whole, and moving to something else like Bitwarden. But this was very this was a very sophisticated and determined attacker, and sophisticated attacker. And it's good that we finally got some more details about how this worked. So, the, the Plex angle though is very interesting, and it's very timely in terms of today's episode because what happened here was this: this person was working from home, and so this person, being an engineer like me, I, actually I'm running a Plex server. Uh, but the difference with me is I refuse to poke holes in my firewall. And my guess is that this person, like a lot of people do running Plex servers, they allow access to their Plex servers from outside their home because they want to be able to watch their movies and watch their TV shows that they have stored on this file server on this media server from outside their home too. Like when they're traveling or things like that, I'm I'm just guessing, I don't know, maybe we'll get more details later, but just generally speaking, this does happen. If you're, if you're not careful, if you. Open up services on your router if you poke holes in your firewall in order to be able to access some of your things from outside your home. That leaves it vulnerable. And this guy, from what from a different article I think I read, uh, was running a three-year-old version of the Plex server, so he had not updated. I'm saying he, maybe it's not a he, um, uh, but let's just say he, because I don't know. If if he had patched it, maybe it would not have been vulnerable. But it was vulnerable. So so this external bad actor figured out that. This guy was working from home. I know his home IP address. I poked around at that IP address. I found some holes in the firewall. I, f- behind that firewall, I found a Plex server running a really old version of Plex with some known vulnerabilities. Then I compromised the Plex server. Then I went laterally, uh, moved laterally from the Plex server to uh, maybe other devices at the home, but certainly eventually to this person's work laptop. I mean, this this was a sophisticated hack. So anyway, I I just thought you might find those details interesting, and especially uh, today, we're going to be talking about how to defend your home network, so that, that, that was timely. All right, next up, this is a short article from Kaspersky. And for those of you working from home, or maybe managing people that work from home, this is something you should pay attention to. Storing corporate and personal information accounts and files on separate devices is one of the most popular and effective tips for information security. Segregation, in other words. Many companies set this as a mandatory requirement for all employees. A natural extension of such policy is prohibiting data sharing between work and home computers via services like Dropbox and recommending not to register personal accounts, for example, in online stores, to work email. Often, neither users nor administrators consider another place where home and work interact, in web browser settings. Suggestions to enable Chrome browser synchronization using a Google Cloud account pop up from day one, and in fact, Chrome often enables it automatically after the user logs in to Gmail or Google Docs. In Firefox and Edge, syncing is less obtrusive, but it exists and is also offered. At first glance, having synchronized bookmarks is convenient and not risky, but attackers think otherwise, of course. Firstly, your cloud profile contains quite a lot of information. In addition to a list of bookmarks and open tabs, browsers also synchronize passwords and extensions between computers. Therefore, attackers compromising an employee's home computer can gain access to a number of work passwords and if a user installs a malicious extension at home, it will automatically appear on the work computer. These are not hypothetical attacks. It was password synchronization in Google Chrome that led to the compromising of information security giant Cisco, while malicious extensions disguised as corporate security were used to steal OAuth authentication tokens. Secondly, malicious extensions can be used for data exfiltration from an infected computer. As soon as the Chrome browser communicates within Google's legitimate infrastructure here, an attack may go on a long time without generating warnings from network defenses. System administrators have to take a number of measures to effectively address the threat posed by browser synchronization. And it gives a handful of examples here. 1. Use browsers that support centralized security policy settings, such as Google Chrome and Firefox. 2. At the security policy level, disable profile synchronization. 3. Again, at policy level, prohibit saving passwords in the browser. A specialized password manager is is preferable. And 4. If necessary, limit the installation of browser extensions to a list of trusted extensions or prohibit it altogether. Last but not least, educate employees well in advance. Explain why they should only use corporate browsers. And why they mustn't save passwords in the browser and synchronize bookmarks with their home computers. Allow some time for adaptation and then, impl- and then apply the new policies. If for some reason an organization cannot implement corporate browser builds, employee training remains the only and key means of protection. All right. So let me, let me back up to that uh, again. So. Many browsers, in fact, I think all major browsers now, will offer to save passwords for you. Basically, they have a built-in password manager function. They can also save you know, bookmarks or favorites for you. They can remember form-filled data, like credit card numbers, like any password manager, uh, but it's built into the browser itself. And generally speaking, these are just not nearly as secure as a dedicated pass- password manager would be, like 1Password or Bitwarden. They're just not as good. Second, Chrome in particular really wants you to sign in with your, your Google account. And when you do that, it will often immediately start synchronizing between every other Chrome browser instance you have where you're also logged in. And it will helpfully sync things like passwords, open tabs, you know, what you know tabs you might have open, or at least allow you to synchronize and send tabs from one Chrome instance to another. It'll share and synchronize all your bookmarks. It will also potentially share and synchronize all the extensions, such that if you have a plugin on one browser instance, it will synchronize and automatically install on all the other instances. Those are really nice convenience features, actually. I use some of that in Firefox. I don't synchronize passwords, but I do synchronize my bookmarks. But now we're mixing up home and work, and so if you're wanting access to all those same things on your work computer, just like you have at your home computer you know, that's very convenient. But in this case, we can see where it's actually going to cause problems. And if you're saving work related passwords and work related sensitive information in such a way that it's synchronized from your work instance of Google, for example, it's Google Chrome, you're running Google Chrome at work, and you're saving all this information there and you're signed into the browser with your personal account at work. And then when you come home and you fire up Chrome on your home computer, all that information is going to synchronize there as well. And so now the bad guys can actually be attacking your home computer to try to get that information where it might have been impossible for them to attack your work computer. And as this article says, this is not theoretical. This is this has actually happened. We've got anecdotes for this has occurred. So be very, very careful of what you allow to be synchronized when you're using some of these you know, browser based synchronization features. And if you have employees that may be doing this, you need to educate them on why this is a problem and make sure that they're not doing it. And if possible, as this article says, if you can implement some policy-based stuff, if you force them to use the you know a corporate browser that you can control and can set policies for, at least you can control some of these things. But if not, you need to educate them on why this is a potential security problem. All right, next up, we've got an article from The Washington Post about a group that is buying up private data in order to basically out priests. A group of conservative Colorado Catholics has spent millions of dollars to buy mobile app tracking data that identified priests who use gay dating and hookup apps and then shared it with bishops around the country. The secretive effort was work of the Denver nonprofit called Catholic Laity and Clergy for Renewal. The use of the data is emblematic of a new surveillance frontier in which private individuals can potentially track other Americans' locations and activities using commercially available information. No U.S. data privacy laws prohibit the sale of this data. The project's aim, according to tax records, is to, quote, empower the church to carry out its mission, unquote, by giving bishops, quote, evidence-based resources, unquote, with which to identify weaknesses in how they train priests. According to two separate reports prepared for bishops and reviewed by the Post, the group says it obtained data that spans 2018 through 2021 for multiple dating and hookup apps, including Grindr, Scruff, Growler, and Jacked, all used by gay men, as well as OkCupid, okay a major site for people of various sexualities. But most of the data appears to be from Grinder, and those familiar with the project said the organizers' focus was gay priests. One report prepared for bishops says the group's sources are data brokers who got the information from ad exchanges, which are sites where ads are bought and sold in real-time like a stock market. And we talked about real-time bidding with Johnny Ryan some time ago. The group cross-referenced location data from the apps and other details with locations of church residences, workplaces, and seminaries to find clergy who were allegedly active on the apps, according to one of the reports and also the audio tape of the group's president. It goes on for a little bit, but there's this one little part at the end that I wanted to quote, and it's basically some other cases where people are buying this third-party data. And for example, it said the police departments have bought data about citizens instead of seeking a warrant, and we're going to actually talk about that later in this show. Domestic abusers have accessed data about their victims, and anti-abortion activists have used data to target people who visit clinics. So yeah, that's this is a byproduct Of this data collection industry, this data broker industry that we have that's almost completely unregulated here in the United States that allows, in this case, you know, we've talked a lot about and we will talk again today about how law enforcement and intelligence agencies and other public organizations are buying this data. But also individual groups and individuals, you know, for the right price and if they know where to go can buy this information as well and use it to expose people and stalk people embarrass people, blackmail people, there's a lot of juicy data out there and in the wrong hands can be used for some pretty nasty purposes. So this isn't really to me so much about the specific case, but just an example of, of what the downside is to not having privacy regulations are. All right. So speaking of which, now I've got a rather long article from Politico. It's actually much longer than this. I'm just going to read you the highlights, but it's about our old friend, the ring doorbell. <laughs> and, and and how that data is being used, and some might say abused, by law enforcement. The week of last Thanksgiving, Michael Larkin, a business owner in Hamilton, Ohio, picked up his phone and answered a call. It was the local police, and they had wanted footage from Larkin's front door camera. Larkin had a Ring Video doorbell, one of the more than 10 million Americans with the Amazon-owned product installed on, at their front doors. His doorbell was among 21 Ring cameras in and around his home and business, picking up footage of Larkin, neighbors, customers, and anyone else near his house. The police said they were conducting a drug-related investigation on a neighbor, and they wanted video of a suspicious activity between 5 and 7 p.m. one night in October. Larkin cooperated and sent clips of a car that drove by his Ring camera more than 12 times in that time frame. He thought that was all the police would need. Instead, it was just the beginning. They asked for more footage, now from the entire day's worth of records, and a week later, Larkin received a notice from Ring itself. The company had received a warrant signed by a local judge. The notice informed him it was obligated to send footage from more than 20 cameras, whether or not Larkin was willing to share it himself. As networked home surveillance cameras become more popular, Larkin's case, which has not previously been reported, illustrates a growing collision between the law and people's own expectation of privacy for the devices that they own. A loophole that concerns privacy advocates and democratic lawmakers, but which the legal system hasn't fully grappled with. Questions of who owns private home security footage and who can get access to it have become a bigger issue in the national debate over digital privacy. And when law enforcement gets involved, even the slim existing legal protections evaporate. In the debate over home surveillance, much of the concern has focused on Ring in particular because of its popularity as well as the company's track record of cooperating closely with law enforcement agencies. The company offers a multitude of products such as indoor cameras or spotlight cameras for homes and businesses, recording videos based on motion activation, with the footage stored for up to 180 days on Ring's servers. They amount to a large and unregulated web of eyes on American communities, which can provide law enforcement valuable information in the the event of a crime, but also create a 24-7 recording operation that even the owners of the cameras aren't fully aware they've helped to build. Ring can deny requests, provide partial responses, or hand over everything that's included in the warrant, according to the company. In Larkin's case, Daly confirmed to Politico that Ring reviewed Larkin's warrant and provided a full response to the legal request. It sent all the footage the police asked for. Larkin's case raises new red flags about law enforcement's ability to get footage inside people's homes, even when it's irrelevant to the investigation in question. Stored video footage is generally governed by data privacy laws, which are still new in the U.S. and largely limited to the state level. So far, all the U.S. state privacy laws, from the strictest regulations in California to the industry-backed law in Virginia, include exemptions if law enforcement comes asking. The most ambitious federal law so far proposed in Congress, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which died in committee last year, included the same loophole. As private surveillance grows, this loophole looks bigger and bigger to privacy advocates and security-minded homeowners like Larkin. When it comes to Ring in particular, the company hasn't just been a passive actor in that growth or in law enforcement's interest. As its doorbell cams grew more popular, Ring developed a symbiotic relationship with police who realized that the privately owned cameras were generating valuable surveillance footage that they could leverage for investigations. Local police departments would often give away Ring doorbells, which the company provided for free in some cases. Ring has an app called Neighbors where users can upload and post clips like a virtual neighborhood watch. In 2018, it started partnering with local police departments with features specifically for officers on the app, allowing them to send public safety alerts and requests for video footage to users in a specific area. By 2023, Ring had nearly 2,350 police departments on its Neighbors network. After sending the initial footage, Larkin started to find the police demands onerous. And this is a quote from Larkin. He said, quote, He sent one asking for all the footage from October 25th, unquote. That was a far bigger ask, he said. Larkin told Politico that he has five cameras surrounding his house, which record in five to 15 second bursts whenever they're activated. He also has three cameras inside his house, as well as 13 cameras inside the store he owns, which is nowhere near his home. All of these cameras are connected to his Ring account. He declined that request. He says his main concern at first was practical. Each clip, even if it were only five seconds long, would take up to a minute to download and send over. After he stopped cooperating, he didn't hear from that detective again until he received an email from Ring notifying him that his account was the subject of a warrant from the Hamilton Police Department. This time, Larkin wasn't able to choose which cameras he could send videos from. The warrant included all five of his outdoor cameras and also added a sixth camera that was inside his house, as well as any videos from cameras associated with his account, which would include the cameras in his store. It would include footage recorded from the cameras he had in his living room and bedroom, as well as the 13 cameras he had installed at his store associated with his account. Larkin, now incensed that the police were requesting footage from inside his home for an investigation that didn't even involve him, wanted to fight the warrant. He estimated that a lawyer would have been too expensive, and he only had about seven days to challenge it before Ring would comply. He still doesn't understand how a judge could have signed off on a warrant asking for footage from a camera inside his home when the investigation was on his neighbor. Privacy advocates point out that the police don't have unfettered authority in demanding footage. They need to get a warrant from a judge who's expected to exert some control, just as when they do when granting a search warrant. Though Larkin's warrant was unusually sweeping, warrants themselves are increasingly common. After concerns from activists and lawmakers about Ring's role in community surveillance, the company began in 2020 publishing a transparency report on law enforcement requests the company receives. The report shows that the number of search warrants it receives has grown significantly each year. It received 536 search warrants in 2019, the first year covered by the report. In the first half of 2022, it received 1,622 requests. Ring 2 has declined to provide footage in the past. According to its transparency report, it sent back no information in response to 113 out of 536 warrants Uh, in 2019 and 634 out of 610 warrants in 2020 ring stopped providing information on how many warrants received no responses in 2021 and did not offer a response to politico's question about why the disclosures changed Though the Fourth Amendment is supposed to protect Americans from broad law enforcement searches, the legal system's protections for citizens hasn't caught up with digital advances. When police request a warrant for a physical search, the affidavits are usually required to be specific, down to the item that they're searching for and what room it's in. When it comes to electronic communications, the line is blurrier. In the 1986 Electronics Communications Privacy Act, Congress created a fresh standard for surveillance as technology evolved. The law prevents unauthorized government wiretaps on electronic data, but it doesn't address more nuanced questions, like how much data the government can request. For an electronic search, because data can be nearly unlimited, courts have struggled with how to restrict these warrants. As a result, it's common to see warrants for data asking for swaths of digital records that would be considered an overreach by judges if it were for a physical search. Privacy advocates at the organizations such as the FF and the ACLU have called for reforms to the ECPA, that's the law I talked about earlier, which would close some of the loopholes in government data requests like being able to obtain data without a warrant through third parties. Still, these reforms wouldn't address issues with judges rubber stamping warrants without proper review, leaving people like Larkin struggling for privacy from government requests. So we've talked about this before, and I've railed against Ring and Amazon before with their pushing these things to consumers, through the police creating this massive surveillance network and have, it's kind of these shady relationships. But I thought this was really interesting to to go into a specific case of a specific person and what they went through and what kind of information was was taken from him, basically, that he would not have given up. And it doesn't even make sense, the information they were getting. Like like the guy said, I mean, why do they need access to his indoor cameras? Why do they need access to his business cameras? It just didn't make any sense. So there's obviously work that needs to be done here. And also, this article dovetails nicely with the Dear carry question for the week, but we'll come to that in a bit. All right, just a few more short articles, and then we'll get to the Dear carry question. The Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General has released a troubling new report detailing how federal agencies like the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, and the Secret Service have conducted surveillance using cell site simulators, or CSS, without proper authorization and in violation of the law. Specifically, the Office of the Inspector General found that these agencies did not adhere to the federal privacy policy governing the use of CSS and failed to obtain special orders required before using these types of surveillance devices. Even under exigent circumstances where law enforcement use of technologies that track cell phone use are deemed immediately necessary, law enforcement must still get a pen register order. The pen register order is required by statute and policy, even though exigency otherwise excuses police from having to obtain a conventional warrant. The inspector general noted that the agencies didn't follow the rules in these cases either. Cell side simulators, also known as stingrays or IMSI catchers, that's IMSI, are devices that masquerade as legitimate cell phone towers, tricking phones within a certain radius into connecting to the device rather than a tower. Cell site simulators operate by conducting a general search of all cell phones within the, within the device's radius in violation of basic constitutional protections. Law enforcement uses cell site simulators to pinpoint the location of phones with greater accuracy than phone companies. Cell site simulators can also log IMSI numbers, or unique identifying numbers, of all the mobile devices within a given area. Unfortunately, the report redacts crucial information regarding the total number of times that each agency used CSS, with and without a warrant, and when they used the devices to support external information. That's the parallel construction argument that we talked about a few weeks ago. The OIG should release this information to the public. Knowing the aggregate totals would not harm any active investigation, but rather inform public debate over the agency's reliance on this invasive technology. Make no mistake, cell site simulators are mass surveillance that draws in the cell signal and collects data on every phone in the vicinity. The fact that government agencies are using these devices without the utmost consideration for the privacy and rights of individuals around them is alarming, but not surprising. The federal government, and in particular agencies like HSI and ICE, or ICE, have a dubious and troubling relationship with overbroad collection of private data on individuals. In 2022, we learned that the HSI and ICE had used overly broad warrants to collect bulk financial records concerning people sending money across international borders through companies like Western Union. Mass surveillance of this kind is a massive violation of privacy and has elicited the concern of at least one U.S. senator hoping to probe into these tactics. Most people carry cell phones on them at any given moment. EFF will continue to fight against careless government use of cell site simulators, and we will continue to monitor federal agencies that rely on secrecy and strategic ignorance of the law in order to wield powerful and overly broad surveillance powers and technology. All right, not too much to add to that. We've talked about this several times, but I thought it was important to keep you up to date on this, that there actually has been you know, some updates on this abuse of this technology And with some specific incidents, and we do need to have a lot more transparency around this. So let's hope the EFF and ACLU and others can, maybe through Freedom of of Information Act requests, can get more of this data out to us. All right, lastly, I've got two very related articles, both about breaches and health data. Uh, And we've unfortunately talked about this recently as well. And here's two more cases that have come up that really means we need to figure this stuff out sooner rather than later. All right, this one's from TechCrunch. Cerebral, which is the name of this company, has revealed that it shared the private health information, including mental health assessments of more than 3.1 million patients in the United States. With advertisers and social media giants like Facebook, Google, and TikTok, the telehealth startup, which exploded in popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic after rolling lockdowns and a surge in online-only virtual health services, disclosed the security lapse in a filing with the federal government that it shared patients' personal and health information who used the app to search for therapy and other mental health care services. Cerebral said that it collected and shared names, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, IP addresses, and other demographics, as well as data collected from Cerebral's online mental health self-assessment, which would have also included the services that the patient selected, assessment responses, and other associated health information. Cerebral was sharing patients' data with tech giants in real time by way of trackers and other data-collecting code that the startup embedded within its apps. Tech companies and advertisers like Google, Facebook, and TikTok allowed developers to include snippets of their custom-built code, which allows the developers to share information about their app's users' activity with the tech giants, often under the guise of analytics but also for advertising. But users often have no idea that they are opting into this tracking simply by accepting the app's terms of use and privacy policies, which many people don't read. Cerebral said in its Notice to Customers, buried at the bottom of its website, that the data collection and sharing has been going on since 2019 when the startup was founded. The startup said it has removed the tracking code from its apps. While not mentioned, the tech giants are under no obligations to delete the data that Cerebral shared with them. Because of how Cerebral handles confidential patient data, it's covered under the U.S. health privacy law known as HIPAA. According to a list of health-related security lapses under investigation by the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees and enforces HIPAA, Cerebral's data lapse is the second-largest breach of health data in 2023. News of Cerebral's years-long data lapse comes just weeks after the U.S. Federal Trade Commission slapped GoodRx with a $1.5 million fine and ordered it to stop sharing patients' health data with advertisers, and BetterHelp was ordered to pay customers $8.5 million for mishandling users' data. If you're wondering why startups today should terrify you, Cerebral is just the latest example. Now, I don't know why they would say startups should terrify you like not all startups are doing this, but certainly healthcare startups, actually any healthcare company, but certainly a lot of these portals and brokers don't follow the same rules and in some cases aren't subject to the same rules that regular uh, health providers are subject to. You can give your information to these companies and they are under no obligation under HIPAA to protect it. At least that's my understanding. I'm not a lawyer. But we talked about this recently, where if you voluntarily give information to some of these companies that are not under the HIPAA umbrella, they are under no obligation to protect it and under no obligation not to turn around and sell that data to somebody else. So what's it going to take for us to do something about this? Well, maybe this next article will for, will, <laughs> will address that. And this is from NPR. Members of the House of Representatives and their staffers were informed Wednesday their personal data may have been compromised due to a significant data breach by DC HealthLink, a health insurance marketplace. In a letter to House staff obtained by NPR, Catherine Spinder, the chief administrative officer for the House, said that the size and scope of the breach is currently unknown, but the FBI said that, quote, the account information and personal identifiable information of hundreds of members of House and staff were stolen, unquote. And this is a quote from Spender. Catherine says, quote, it's important to note that at this time, it does not appear that members or the House of Representatives were the specific target of the attack, unquote. She advised those affected to freeze their family's credit through all major credit bureaus. In a memo sent to all Senate email account holders that was obtained by NPR, users were told that the breach did not include personally identifiable information beyond names, email, date of enrollment, and family relationship to those affected. In a statement, DC HealthLink said that it has, quote, initiated a comprehensive investigation, unquote, and is working with forensic investigators and law enforcement. And further quoting from that statement, quote, concurrently, we are taking action to ensure the security and privacy of our users' personal information. A little bit late for that. We are in the process of notifying impacted customers and will provide identity and credit monitoring services, unquote. So, yeah, that's the knee-jerk response to data leaks, you know, you know, pay for one free year of life lock or whatever, or whatever credit monitoring services, you know, after the horse has already left the barn, you know, but maybe it's going to take this really hitting home on some of these legislators to have them understand that, you know, we need to do something about this. So if there's one takeaway from all this stuff, it's, you know, it's that I'm really glad to see that, for example, the white house has put out these cybersecurity directives and privacy directives. And, you know, we're, we definitely seem like we're finally starting to get serious about this stuff. We've got a long way to go. But as these things keep happening and keep hitting closer and closer to home, in particular with the people, you know, in government who could actually do something about this, you know, maybe we'll finally see some progress on this. So all of these stories today will lead in nicely with the the two special features for the day. And we'll start with the deer carry question. And this is from an anonymous listener. Uh, and the question is this. If you were to install and use a video camera in your home, internal or external facing, how would you set it up for the best privacy posture as far as keeping the network secure and ensuring the images aren't leaked to a third-party server or visible on the web, i.e. Shodan? All right, so we've obviously just talked about (laughs) camera security, and I'll circle back to that in a minute, but this listener did mention specifically Shodan. What is Shodan? I've talked about it a couple times before, but effectively, it's... In a search engine for web connected devices. And that is just what it sounds like. So for people who have web cameras and other internet connected devices that are directly connected to the internet or are exposed to the internet through holes in firewalls, for example, this search engine pokes around the internet. There's only 4 billion addresses and, you know, you can look at them all if you take the time to do it pokes around and looks to see what devices might be out there that are unsecure. Uh, For example, webcams and security cameras. If you've got a security camera that's hooked up to the net that is not sending encrypted traffic, then somewhere, anywhere around the planet, if someone knows how to find it, they can just go and take a peek and see what's being shown on that camera right now. You can do this yourself. If you went to... S-H-O-D-A-N dot I-O, that's Shodan dot I-O. If you go to that website, first of all, I recommend that you do this uh, and just put in your own personal IP address and see if anything comes up. How do you find out what your public IP address is? I'm glad you asked. You can go to what'smyip.com. That's W-A-T-I-S-M-Y-I-P dot com what's my ip.com that will tell you what your externally facing public ip address is for every device in your home which in this case is basically your router uh, which forwards you know messages to that address to uh, individual devices inside your home when necessary but if you happen to have devices that are exposing themselves to the internet including your router in some way shape or fashion uh, you can search on your ip address and it might show you devices on your home network but you can also look for other devices as well you can poke around shodan i mean this is just it's like you know looking at public cameras on the web if, if if these people have put these devices out on the internet without properly protecting them you can search for them this way and bad guys know how to do this too it's not like this tools you know This is a search engine. Anybody could do this with or without a tool like Shodan. You could do it, but it's a nice convenient place to check yourself and other places to see if there's any problems there. Okay. So first of all, uh, if you're going to put devices like this in your home, do not expose them On the public internet, they have most of the time uh, a service, a cloud based service setup that allows you to connect them to the cloud, which is private and secured and encrypted, uh, which gives only you access to, to those devices. Now, as we've just seen with Ring Doorbell, which was bought by Amazon, now owned by Amazon. If you use a service like Ring and you use their cloud-based storage service, it is encrypted, but they hold the keys, meaning that at any time, like, for instance, if law enforcement comes knocking or if there's a rogue employee that wants to get access to this, and not every employee would have this, but as we just saw with LastPass, there will be certain people, engineering or support staff, that will have access to some of these things. They could go poking around and looking at that at that video, not, not just live video, but stored video. So first of all, you definitely want to make sure that any webcam you attach and use for home security or home monitoring or whatever uh, has full encryption for the data, not only in transit, but in storage. But here's the real key. You want to find one that lets you hold the encryption keys so that not even the company, the manufacturer of that device or the company which they've contracted with to do the cloud hosting services, that they can't look at that data. Only you can look at that data. And I don't know how many of these do this out of the box, but I will say that if you're an Apple person uh, and you've got the right equipment at home to do this, you can use Apple's secure video, which is their home automation system. And if you've got the HomeKit secure video turned on for a given device, that means that the that access to the device, including stored video, goes to your iCloud. And according to Apple... They cannot access it. Only you can, because the encryption keys are stored locally only on your Apple devices so that only your Apple devices can can access that that video. Even Apple, supposedly, cannot look at any of the data that's stored uh, up in iCloud. Now, if you do this, for example, I've done this with, with, I've got a Eufy cam in my house, and not all manufacturers support this. And even for some manufacturers that do, not all models that they make support it. For example, my Eufy doorbell does not support yet Apple HomeKit secure video, but I've got a a monitoring cam in my house that does. And so for the ones that do, I connect them to Apple's HomeKit and that will actually potentially I mean, basically you're you're changing out. Um, the manufacturer's services for Apple services. So you might be losing some features there. In particular, for some dumb reason, secure video only supports HD video. It doesn't support 2K video. So even though I've got a 2K camera, when I've hooked it up to the Apple HomeKit secure video, I'm only getting HD. But I do know at least that that video is only available to me. So it's getting better. You need to carefully review the privacy policies of these companies and you have to dig a little bit to figure out what their security is. They'll all say probably that it's encrypted and, and secure and private. You know, they'll use those words, but you really need to dig a little deeper to find out whether or not uh, they will have access to your data. And I'm guessing in almost all cases that they will, uh, you know, if they say that, you know, they, they store it on the cloud and that they will provide this to law enforcement on you know, with a valid warrant, then that does mean that they've got the capability to do so. So if you're an apple person and you've got the right apple hardware at home and by the way that would include like a modern apple tv or a modern uh, apple home pod those are needed to be like the, the base for HomeKit, like the controller the hub if you've at least got one of those items in your house uh, then you can you know use this HomeKit secure video and then only you will have access to that video so now for the tip of the week and we're we're running along today so i'm not going to go through all of this here with you today but I thought this was really interesting. The, the national security agency, the NSA has put out a really nice and pretty comprehensive guide on home network security and smart device security. And it's really timely. It's, I thought it was very well done. (laughs) And as I was reading this, it was funny because I was, I was teaching my class using my book as a textbook. I was teaching a class on security and privacy, and we'd just gotten done talking about the network security just on my class on home network security. And, and this, came out this thing from the NSA came out and as I was reading like yep my book says that yep my book says that yep (laughs) it's like I could just map it and so I finally thought well you know what I should just do an article of that and I'm actually in the article map all the things that the NSA said to do back to specific tips in the book and there were oh gosh a couple dozen so I'm not going to go through all that with you here if you go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and look at the most recent article there or if you're a newsletter subscriber it's already sitting in your inbox Uh, I actually walk through each of the NSA's recommendations and then give my commentary and map those back to the tips in the book, just in case you have the book. That way you can actually get the, you know, the full, you know, instructions on how to do these things with pictures, you know, where, where it makes sense, including the the text of the book explains why they're important. So I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights here, but if you really want the full story, go visit the, the most recent article on firewalls don't stop dragons. So let me just run through some of the highlights with you here, quick. Uh, first of all, you know, make sure you're using a modern operating system and you keep it up to date. So whether that's your computer with macOS or Windows, or whether that's your smart devices with Androids or iOS, you know, make sure you're keeping that up to date. And if you have a device that's so old that it can't be updated, you really might want to think about getting a newer device because there's new security features out all the time, and old software that's no longer supported, you know, is not getting those security updates. So you definitely want to stay up to date. Uh, you want to make sure all your routing devices are also kept up to date. So your router in particular, if you've never checked this, you should log into your router with your admin interface. And you know, if you find the manual, the user guide that came with it, or look it up online, it'll tell you how to do this. Make sure that you're updating the software on your router as well. It's the gatekeeper for your entire home network. And as we've talked about today, uh, you need to make sure that that is kept up to date and all the bugs are patched. Make sure they're using modern wireless encryption uh, those standards would be wpa3 uh, would be ideal that's the most recent uh, or wpa2 isn't bad but you definitely want to be using encryption if you've got an older device that can only do regular old wpa or worse yet wep those are no longer considered secure you definitely need a new router now and also you should get your own router a lot of isps provide routers for you Uh, sometimes they're bundled with your modem like all in one box but there's nothing preventing you from not using that. You can get your own Wi-Fi router, and I recommend that you do so that you have full control over keeping that thing up to date and making sure you've got full privacy. Uh, buy your own home router. You can just hook it up to the, the one they give you and just not use theirs. But that does mean you, you're in charge of keeping that up to date. You should definitely set up a guest network in your house. We've talked about this before. Uh, Whenever you have guests over, that's why they call it a guest network. You know, you don't know where those devices have been. (laughs) They may be infected. They may not know they're infected. But if they bring an infected device onto your home network, then that device, while it's on the network, can be probing around, potentially, if it's got malware running on it, and try to infect other devices in your house. So, you know, use your guest network for your guests. But also put your really insecure, crappy IoT devices on that guest network as well. That will keep them segregated from your from your other devices that are more secure and have probably a lot more uh, interesting data on them. So uh, use your guest network, not just for guests, but also for your IoT devices. Make sure you're turning on full disk encryption on your devices. Uh, almost all modern computers have dedicated hardware to make this really fast. You won't notice anything. It's not going to slow something down. You uh, should definitely be encrypted to your hard drives. Note, by the way, that your smart devices are pretty much done this way by default now, so there's really nothing you need to do. But for your computers, you definitely want to be encrypted to your hard drive. You want to be using... A password manager, because humans are just not up to the task of having strong, long, unique passwords for all of their accounts. You just can't remember that. So you really want to be using a password manager. Uh, You also want to be using a non-administrator account for your day-to-day computing stuff. You know, all modern computers support multiple accounts. So you need at least two for every on your computer. You need a non-admin account and you want an administrator account use the non-admin account for on a daily basis. And then as something comes up where you have to install software or make a special system change that requires administrator-level permissions, it will pop up a window and ask you to enter the administrator credentials. You don't even have to log into that account. You probably never will again, but it's there, it exists. And then when you want to do something that requires it, it'll pop up a thing as opposed to just doing it automatically. And remember that anything that you can do, malware can do as well. We've talked about that just today. So you want to limit what you can do in most cases and just have that special account for for the cases where you need to do something that makes a very important change on your system. I would personally never use public Wi-Fi. You know, I know that's really nice to have when you go into Starbucks or McDonald's or the airport or on on the airline itself. A lot of times they're providing this. I would avoid that where possible. You can't really do this on the airline, but (laughs) I, I would avoid using public Wi-Fi whenever you can. All the connections are probably encrypted, but you're still potentially exposing yourself. I would just use the cellular data on your phone. It's the devil you know. Um, Most phones support this hotspot feature now. All you have to do is make sure that your data access plan with your cellular cellular provider uh, enabled this feature and doesn't charge you an arm and a leg for it. Uh, But when I'm out in the public, I just use my phone to access the internet as a Wi-Fi hotspot and then to the cellular network from there. However, if you do want to use public Wi-Fi, make sure you're using a VPN. There are really only very specific use cases for a VPN. A lot of people think it's a silver bullet for security and privacy. It's really not. I've got a whole article on this if you want to check it out. It's linked to in the the article I just told you about. But a VPN is definitely a powerful tool. It's actually, if you really want privacy, honestly, it's something you should be using all the time uh, because your internet service provider, whether that's your cellular provider or your home ISP or a public network, if you're on a public network, they all can see to some degree you know where you're going on the internet. They may not be able to see what you're doing there, but they can still see where you're going and that metadata can be telling. All right, there's a lot more to this article. I would encourage you to read it. Again, just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. All right, there it is. There's your news, your Dear carry question and your tip of the week. All right, we're already running long today, so there's not much else to say. Uh, I will just say again, if you want some really cool dragon swag, if you want to get that t-shirt or that hat or a sticker or a coffee mug or whatever that has the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon logo on it, go to fdsd.me slash merch. If you want to get entered in a monthly drawing for a free PDF copy of my book and ask me a question, I will answer that here on the on the air as part of my Dear Carrie segment. Uh, you can find information about that by going to fdsd.me slash I've got some great shows coming up. Next week, we'll have our interview with Casey Babcock from Bitwarden. And shortly after that, we'll be doing a panel discussion with some of my fellow security and privacy advocates and some other great stuff already in the works. So, again, subscribe if you haven't. If you haven't checked out the book, please do. Fifth edition is out. It is amazing. It's, it's really long. It's got all sorts of stuff in it, over 200 tips complete with pictures and step-by-step instructions and a lot of explanations of the stuff we talk about in this show all the time that explains how all this stuff works. If you haven't already, I would love to get a really nice review uh, on iTunes for the, the, for the podcast or on Amazon for the book. That's where most people go for those reviews. Uh, I would love to get some more of those. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Take care out there, stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.